But it's all about a discovery. Discovering about you as a person. Your personality, your intelligence, and your gifts and abilities. And now, there is even such a thing as a humility test. So we can tell everyone how humble we are. Now let me give you three questions from this humility test, which I found on the internet, okay? And don't tell me your answers, keep them to yourselves. Question number one, and do be honest. How would you describe your physical appearance? I'm not so good looking. I'm fairly average. I could do with a new haircut. Or, there is no one in this world more attractive. Who chose number three? Okay, we're all quite humble. Question number two. You've just been offered a big promotion at work. Would you say, no thank you, I really don't deserve it. It is such a privilege to accept your offer. Or let's all celebrate my good news. And the last question, question three. When you play a game against someone and you win, do you make a point to let them win the next time? I don't. (laughs) But I'm not humble. Do you shake their hands and say, good game? Or do you laugh out loud and say, that was so easy? (laughs) Who's done it? Come on. Done it many times. So how did you get on? And of course, there is such a thing as a false humility, that groveling kind, yuck. But true humility is a deeply attractive thing. And it's seen, whose phone is that? And it's seen, sorry, and it's seen in our actions. Now, without embarrassing her too much, Andy Gardner, who we've heard about this morning, gives us an example of humility. Andy is a doctor, a proper doctor, and she could earn a good salary here in the UK. But she is obeying God's call, I think there's some pictures coming up, to go to Ecuador as a missionary with Latin Link. And she'll work with children who have been orphaned by AIDS. Now in doing this, Andy is following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus brought a whole new dimension to the word humility. And it's this word humility that becomes the supreme mark of Jesus in the New Testament. And we find this in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. Now what we find here is a theological gem. And it certainly is that. But it is so much more than that. It is the biggest, biggest example of humility that you and I will ever consider. Humility for a Christian is a wonderful word. Why? Because it is the Christ word. However, humility does not come easily to us. I know from my own personal experience. It must be worked at. And that was also the case for the Christians in Philippi. Why? Because we live in a world which tells us, you really want to be number one. Take the comedy series, The Office. Now, how does David Brent, regional manager from Wernham Hogg and Slough, motivate a team? Here's how. He brings along a stereo, and then they all listen at full volume to the song, You're Simply the Best. And it's the opposite of humility. 
And it's against that same background that Paul tells us how we can shine like stars in the universe, our verse for the year. And he has simply only one solution. And it's this. He points us to Christ. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, we see we are to follow the example of Christ. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And that's how you and I will shine like stars in the world. Now to help us do that, we're going to think about this question. W-D-D-J-D. What did Jesus do? As you may have seen the bracelets, W-W-J-D. What would Jesus do? But this morning we're going to think about the question, what did Jesus do? And in Philippians chapter 2, we find what Jesus did. And it's incredible. So let's read Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 11 just once more. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 to 11. About Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what we have just read is almost certainly an early Christian hymn. Did Paul write this hymn? Perhaps. Did someone else write this hymn? Perhaps. Did Paul modify an earlier version of this hymn? Perhaps. Did the Holy Spirit want us to read this hymn in the inspired Word of God and let it impact our lives. Yes. And in this hymn, we are pointed afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. And first of all, we come to the humiliation of Christ. In verses 6 to 8. Now we find here four incredible steps in Christ's self-humbling. And these steps are a wonderful summation in answering our question, what did Jesus do? So let's look at these four steps in turn. Firstly, in verse 6, we see the position that Jesus came from. Equality with God. Paul writes, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now the word being tells us something totally unique about Jesus Christ. And it's this. In Jesus, we meet one who is equal with God himself. Now today in 2005, we live in a pluralistic world 
And we are often asked how Jesus relates to religious figures, such as Buddha, Muhammad, and Krishna. So how can we defend our claims as to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Well, here we find a point of distinction to go on with. Jesus Christ, he never became. He did not begin at Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, get this, always was. So in Jesus, we meet God himself. And that's what Paul is telling us here. The word he uses for nature, you've seen the NIV NIV footnote, it includes the idea of form. And it speaks about the outside and the inside of something. Now you might use the expression about someone, they're in good form. For example, last week Tiger Woods won his fourth Masters Golf Championship. And people would say, Tiger Woods is in good form. And what they mean is, his performance on the outside, it looks good. Now sometimes, my wife Alice will say to me, you're in good form today, Richard. And it's true. Now she doesn't mean, it is. Why are you laughing? Now she doesn't mean that I can play golf like Tiger Woods, okay? I wish I could. It's to do with my inner self that day. I'm happy, relaxed, and being very helpful in the house, and all that kind of thing. So, and why are you laughing? Again, so it means two things. And the word that Paul uses here, it can mean both. He's saying that Jesus, however you examine him, however you look at him, inwardly or outwardly, is in his very nature God. Jesus is God's equal. And that is why he is utterly unique. Remember how John puts it in chapter 1 of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Erwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, writes about this uniqueness of Christ in his book, Christ Among Other Gods. And that is God's with a small g. Listen to what he writes. Try, Try and grasp this. In the presence of the infinite, personal God, all other gods must vanish. And here's why. Because in Jesus Christ, we find all the attributes of God himself. And that is why he is unique. And that is why he stands alone. And so anything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. Speak about God's love, or God's justice, or God's holiness, or God's truth, or God's patience, or his kindness. Anything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. And now we come to the staggering reality. I need to catch this and let it seep into the very core of our being. This one who is equal with God made himself nothing. And that's incredible humility. And literally, it means he emptied himself in the Greek. Now think about that. The one who is God, the one who is the creator, the one who is worthy of all worship and the source of all power, Jesus Christ becomes a helpless baby in a dirty animal stable. Christ becomes one with us in space and time. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, 
God's perfect timing. God sent his son, born of a woman. Now firstly, let's look at what this does not mean. Okay? It does not mean that he emptied himself of, his, of being God, of his deity. He did not in some way empty himself of all his essential attributes of God. You see, if that was the case, then he would no longer be God. Instead, it means he gave up all his rights as the unique son of God. You see, our God is not a grasper. The one who is equal with God, he descends into this world as a nobody. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now every year, for the past few years, we have gone to the Keswick Convention on holiday. And last year, we went to week one of Keswick, when Alistair Begg was speaking. And as you know, Alistair worked here at the chapel a few years ago, and I think we've got a picture of Keswick. And we stayed, that's us, and we stayed in a nice clean cottage just near the convention centre. And it was all very nice, and it was all very civilised. But then I went back to week two at Keswick for a few days. I went to hear Jonathan Lamb take some seminars on preaching. However, instead of a nice clean cottage, this time I would sleep in a freezing cold tent in a muddy farmer's field. And it gets even worse. To get washed in the morning, I would go for a swim in Lake Windermere. It is true. And I would even shave down there. It was freezing. So if you're a student, never moan about your student accommodation. Okay? It could be a lot worse. Now in a far, far greater way, the Lord Jesus Christ, he descended. Don Carson writes in his book, Basics for Believers. The eternal son did not think of his status as God as something which gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve. And precisely because he is one with God, one with this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. Jesus descended. But this step down went even further yet. He took the very nature of a servant. Step number three. Now in 2005, there are two key words. What are they? Me first. My rights to dominate. My rights to be happy. And my rights to be number one. And it was just the same in the first century. Self-promotion was in. Servanthood. Are you kidding? Professor Keith Bradley, in writing for the BBC, describes what life was like for a servant or a slave in the first century. This is what he says. Their role was to provide labour or to add to their owners social standing as visible symbols of wealth or both. Some slaves were treated well, but there were few restraints on their owners' powers. And it's amazing. That is what Jesus came into this world to be. He came as a servant. In the words of Graham Kendrick's famous hymn, This is our God, the servant king. 
and he turns servanthood completely on its head. Service becomes greatness. And we see this one night shortly before Jesus' death. We see the incredible humility of Christ. And this hymn in Philippians chapter 2 may actually be a meditation on what's happened here in John chapter 13. So let's look at what happened. Now it's just before the Passover feast. And Jesus meets with his disciples. And he gets a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And look at what happens next. He washes their feet. And his disciples just couldn't believe it. You see, that was a job the servants would do. And certainly not esteemed teachers like Christ. And certainly not the eternal Son of God. But they just didn't get it. Jesus came as a servant. And that takes us to the fourth step in Christ's self-humbling. And it's the absolute rock bottom of Jesus' humiliation. And it is the biggest example of humility that we will ever consider. If you look at verse 8, we read, He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now in the first century, the cross was utterly despised. If you think of Auschwitz in the Second World War, then the cross had something of that same symbolic value. It was hated. Listen to this. It is here at the cross that we see the greatest act of humility the world has ever seen. God's impeccable son died on a cross. For the son always does what pleases the father. Don Carson comments again. The cross for Jesus was not only the means by which he sacrificed himself, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, but also the high point of his unqualified obedience to his heavenly Father. But let's think about that. Why did Jesus do that? This one who is equal with God himself, why did he come into this world as a servant? And why did he come to die on a cross? You may have seen this visually in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. And it was horrific. So why? Well, the reason is this. It's because you and I have a desperate need. We have rebelled against the Holy God. And now there is a massive gulf between us and God. And we could never bridge that gulf. And only Jesus could be that bridge between us and a perfect God. In 1 Peter chapter 3 we read, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. A film out just now is called Hotel Rwanda, and you may have seen it. It's a true life story of a man called Paul, a hotel manager in Rwanda. Eleven years ago, Hutus slaughtered almost a million of the Tutsi countrymen with guns and machetes. But here's what Paul did. He rescued over a thousand Tutsi refugees. And how did he do that? He took them into his hotel. Now here's the point. Paul, a hotel manager, offered his hotel to rescue 1,000 people in trouble. 
Jesus Christ, the one who is equal with God, offered his very life to rescue all who will come to him. And it was the greatest act of love ever performed. Isaac Watts was thinking about this amazing act of love when he wrote these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The wonderful humility of Christ. Question. How do we apply this? If you look back to verse 5, we read, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And notice something. Paul writes his letter not to us as individuals, but corporately as a church. And so the question is, how do we put this humility into practice together as a church? Can I try and be practical here? Now, one of the great things that happens when you become a Christian is this. You join a community, the church. And in Charlotte Chapel, we have fellowship groups. And these groups are there to help us live out practically, belonging to a community. So here's an idea. And many people do this already. And following the example of Christ's humility, why not commit to help look after each other and your particular fellowship group. Let me give you an example. If someone in your fellowship group is sick, or is going through a particularly hard time, then you want to make sure that someone goes to visit them. Or if there are lone parents in your group, you might want to babysit for them. Why? Because you belong to a community. And we can show humility by serving young Christians. If someone has recently become a Christian, then it's a really crucial time in their lives. And they will have tons of questions. Now, if you're a more experienced Christian, God has given you a brilliant opportunity. How? Because you can serve a young Christian by discipling them. And some people are doing that already. They've gone through the book, The Purpose Driven Life Together with a New Christian, and it has been so worthwhile. And we can show humility, finally, A final example, by serving the poor. Today in 2005, the World Bank estimates that 1.1 billion people live in less than 65 pence a day. And today, 100 million children do not get a chance to go to school. So how can we serve them? We can back the Make Poverty History campaign organised by groups such as Tear Fund. And why do we do this? Because as Christians, we are following the greatest example of humility the world has seen. Jesus, the one who made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Church in Chicago, writes helpfully in his book, Losing to Win, about what humility really means. This is what he says. It's not that God has a problem of seeing his children in places of honour and glory. In truth, he longs to exalt them. What concerns him is upper mobility as defined by the world. To promote ourselves, to advance our own cause, to push our own agenda at the expense of others. 
And that is why God has a problem with the world's approach to greatness. So there is the incredible humility of Christ. We see what it means to be truly great in God's eyes. However, it didn't end there. Finally, in verses 9 through 11, we see the exaltation of Christ. And what we find here is vindication of Christ's humility. If you look at verse 9, Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Jesus is crowned. He had come down, 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 and therefore God has exalted him. Why? Because whoever humbles himself is exalted. And whoever exalts himself is humbled. And because he humbled himself on a cross, God has super exalted Jesus. He is the king over all. And so we worship him, our exalted Christ. Now listen to this. If you're a Christian, then you share in that exaltation. It's amazing. In Romans chapter 8 verse 37, Paul writes, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here's an idea. When you get up tomorrow morning, Monday morning, and you get the kids ready for school, or you get ready to go to the office, just remind yourself of that. I am victorious in Christ. Jesus is crowned. And he is identified. He has been given a name. And every Jew would know what that name was. It was the name for Jehovah. The name Lord. In Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And that is the same name given to Jesus. You see, although he was Lord before, there is a sense in which he now achieves it as the crucified and the risen Saviour. So Jesus, he is crowned. He is identified. And finally, he is recognised. A day is coming when everyone in the world will recognise who Jesus is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is God's will. One day the Apostle John got a glimpse of this exalted Christ. And look at how he responded to Christ. It's in Revelation chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. Jesus Christ stands alone. He stands unique. And he stands utterly supreme. Today, he is no longer a baby in Bethlehem. And he is no longer on a cross. And he is no longer in a tomb. He is the majestic Lord of heaven and King of earth. And that is wonderful. So here's a question for us. 
How will you and I respond to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ? Do you worship Jesus as Lord? This morning we've looked at the question, what did Jesus do? And someone who recognised what Jesus did was John Newton. John Newton was the commander of a merchant ship. And he specialised in a particular type of cargo. Slaves. But one day John Newton, a slave trader, put his complete trust in the one who came as a slave, a servant, and who is now exalted over all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that day on, there was something obvious about John Newton's life. And it's this. He never moved from the cross. And at the cross he found there is no room for pride, only humility. Many years later, he still, never, he still never forgot the cross. And from his own personal experience, he could write his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And he could say that for one reason only. And it's all because of what Jesus did. Let's pray.